Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Hamilton's mayor says there's going to be a lot more assistance needed for the city budget because of the federal government money that's coming forward. Uh, the little handout about gas tax just ain't going to cut it. We'll get details in just a couple of minutes. Protests continue here and in the United States as stories emerge about injuries people are suffering because of the protests that are going on in just about every major American city. And Ontario has made some temporary changes to layoff regulations. It's all coming up. Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Talking about recoveries and, uh, you know, businesses, restaurants, uh, so many different places right now will be and are continuing to look for government assistance to try to get back on their feet. Well, so are municipalities. And uh, we've talked with Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger about this at great length over the last few months about the shortfall that uh, just about every community is facing these days. Uh, when we had uh, Burlington Mayor Mary Ann Mead Ward on the program last week of the Burlington Town Hall, uh, she echoed those same sentiments. Uh, they're not getting revenue. They've had to close down facilities. There are costs involved in this. Hamilton's situation, we're told, is in probably in the neighborhood of about $30 million. That's the big hole that we're trying to come up with. Well, yesterday, uh, during his daily briefing, the Prime Minister announced that they were going to free up $2.2 billion in gas tax money as uh, what he calls an initial measure to provide liquidity for the cities. Is it enough? Well, let's talk about that. John Best, president and publisher of the Bay Observer, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. John, thanks so much for the time. How are you doing today? Doing great, Bill. Thanks. Good to have you with us. It was inevitable, I guess, that the prime minister was going to have to make some sort of announcement about uh, funding for cities. Uh, this is a, this is a pretty dire circumstance that just about every city, I guess, in Ontario, in Canada, for that matter, is dealing with. No question. Uh, the best part of his announcement, frankly, was was when he said there there may be more later. Because really, what he announced yesterday is a non-announcement. Mm-hmm. It's uh, $2.5 billion that was coming to the city in the regular course of uh, distributing the gas tax money. So the only thing that's going to happen is the cities will get the money earlier uh, rather than later. But uh, this is money that most of these, in fact, I would say all of these municipalities have already committed and the gas tax money uh, has to be used, uh, at least that's the way the program is designed, it has to be used for infrastructure. Uh, the city is facing an operating deficit. And uh, I heard uh, the Minister McKenna yesterday, and somebody asked her about that, and, and she said, well, we, we still want the money spent on infrastructure. So if that's the case, uh, really this is just... Um, it's really a non-announcement, Bill, uh, in many ways. So um, there definitely uh, we we need to definitely follow up on what the prime minister meant when he said there's probably more coming later because uh, what he announced yesterday really was frankly nothing. Yeah, well, let's talk about that and, and because of the hole that's going on here. I mean, if it has to be spent on infrastructure, for instance, initially it had to be spent on transit, uh, but they kind of broadened that a few years ago and said, you know, quote-unquote infrastructure, which is still, uh, you know, leaving a lot of room here for where you're going on. But just what kind of projects is the city going to undertake in a situation like this, John? Most of their workforce is, is not at work right now for simple pleasure. They can't use it on transit because there's nobody riding transit of any consequence right now, and the people that are are on there for free. So uh, this this is less than really a gesture, and it's, it's got to be awfully frustrating. I know that the, the mayor's already spoken out about this. I saw uh, John Tory on TV uh, yesterday talking about this, and uh, they're a little flummoxed by this because they were expecting something a little more direct and, and something that was going to be a little more effective. 
Well, the uh, the Canadian uh, uh, municipalities uh, associate federation of municipalities have asked for ten billion dollars, mm-hmm. and that's not give us our gas tax money a little early. That's we need ten billion new dollars. Um, so that's the magnitude of the problem that that has to be covered. Um, I guess if you look at these very unusual times where the government has already gone into the hole for. 150 billion, um, and maybe that'll creep up to 200 billion before we're done. Uh, 10 billion to uh, help the municipalities uh, with their operating costs, Bill, not their <laughs> capital costs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the scheme of things, you would think it reasonable that uh, the government will do that or should do that. But of course, the difference is this um, you get a certain amount of credit. Uh, when you send checks directly to Canadian voters, which is what has been going on uh, for, you know, and, and thank God it has been going on because it was absolutely necessary. But I don't think you get as much political credit when you give the money to municipalities because it, it doesn't have that direct impact on, on folks at home. Uh, they're going to the bank, they're getting, or they're getting checks in the mail, and, and there it is. Uh, we're, we're not quite as tasteless as the Americans who <laughs> let Donald Trump sign the checks, but uh, everybody gets it. And uh, I think that's the problem uh, from a political standpoint. But this is, this is a crisis and, and clearly um, um, a, an early feeding of the gas tax back to the municipalities is not going to get it done. It, kind of a bookkeeping I, I measure here, but we you touched on yeah, this, the we need to clarify would call for it a, a timing issue. It's, yeah, exactly. It's really just timing. It's, and and when you say it's money that's already been been budget, every city that's done their budget, and every city has now got their twenty twenty budget. Of course, it's all gone to you know hell on a handcart now because of COVID. But uh, they budgeted for this amount of money. In other words, it's that's already spent. They've already allocated this money someplace, and they you know it was just a matter. Okay, you're going to get it in June instead of September. Which really is no a municipality in Canada that hasn't already spent the money, or at least you know uh, earmarked it for whatever purpose. So it's uh, it's kind of like two ships passing in the night in terms of uh, needs and and uh, and wants. I think the answer. I mean, we're we're coming out of an unprecedented uh, fiscal situation. Oh, it is an unprecedented Second World War. First World War would certainly be equal or maybe even greater than this in terms of the fiscal impact. But I think we really have to look at getting the municipalities on a uh, um, a, a new tax regime. And, and I think part of it has to be that the cities participate in a consumption tax where uh, it's equitable, it's equal, it's fair. The gas tax is a consumption tax, but it's, it's too small. And... If you'll recall um, what happened uh, over, you know, starting with the uh, with uh, the, conser- the previous conservative federal government, Harper, uh, he reduced the uh, GST HST by one point, uh, and then he reduced it by a further point. Mm-hmm. So there, there's some tax room in there, and I, I think I think the municipalities have to get a direct share in the HST, and that's going to mean jacking it up a point. Um, if you jack it up a point, it'll raise about $6 billion, which is, um, you know, I think in normal times would, would provide most municipalities with the extra cash they need. 
Here's the thing, to try to sell people on that, because automatically, and I know, because you know, we talked, I remember having that discussion with Jim Flaherty, who was the finance minister back in those days, uh, you know, hey, we're doing everybody a real favor. Well, not really. When you reduce that HST, what they basically did was reduce the amount of money that they were transferring to the cities through the gas tax, uh, which meant our property taxes probably went up as a result of that. So, I mean, you know, the, the people have to understand the ramifications of all of these things. I mean, you know, read past the headline when some of these announcements are made. Uh, because there are going to be some ramifications at every other level. Uh, and that's what's certainly happening in this situation here. It, it, your point's well taken, though, because uh, for as long as I can remember, John, as long as you've been covering municipal politics, which is a while now, uh, there has always been a discussion, usually a one-sided discussion, between municipalities and the federal government about about support and funding. And we're one of the few countries in, in the G7 that don't do that sort of thing on, a, on an ongoing basis. We kind of do a, 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 you know, an ad hoc thing. Here's a program that's in place here, and we're going to put a pile of money here, but when it's gone, it's gone. Other countries understand the sustainability, and they, they, they do bargain with municipalities, and they do put funds in place that are going to be there so that municipalities can, can budget for that and know that that money's going to be there if they need to access it in one way, shape, or form. Uh, I, I guess what we're asking for and what the mayors have been asking for for almost generations now, John, is, is that let's move into the 21st century. No question. Um, uh, municipalities simply can no longer function uh, relying strictly on property taxes. I mean, those days are, are still with us, unfortunately, but, the, you know, this should have been dealt with a long time ago. Um, I think... Um, you know, I think it was uh, John Snowblin, uh, the former provincial minister, who said, never let a good crisis go to waste. Yep. Uh, we're in a crisis now. Uh, I think the receptivity to, uh, I mean, nobody's going to be cheering about raising taxes, but, um, you know, and, and there probably is uh, an opportunity to take a look at some of uh, the spending uh, that's been going on. But in the meantime, I think we have to get the municipalities a uh, you know blended stream of money, and and that's got to involve some kind of consumption tax, and the gas tax just doesn't raise enough. Energy taxes in Canada only bring in about six billion a year, so sharing a bit of that with with the municipalities is not enough. The HST brings in roughly forty million, forty billion a year, and if you raise that by a point, now you're getting into some serious money. Uh, that, that the municipalities can use, and they're no longer now. Of course, what that'll do, you give them the the money um, uh, coming in a guaranteed stream. It's it's going to cut down on a lot of these announcements and reannouncements that we get uh, from uh, governments. But uh, we we have to do something, and I think the public is focused on survival right now. And this is the time if you're going to do something to do it now. Part of the problem is, and this is the other thing I was thinking about this morning, we've got to get Parliament back. Um, we've all had experience now with Zoom. Um, first of all, you can probably get 40 or 50 people in the chamber properly distanced with masks, so you can get roughly 50 of them in there. You can, you can bring in another 100 by TV uh, through the Internet, and, and this Parliament has got to start sitting these uh, these front porch announcements, and in, in yesterday's case, really a non-announcement. Uh, you know, they got to end. Um, we we need to get our government back. Uh, find it rather shocking that I sound like I'm <laughs> agreeing with Andrew Shear, but it, you know, it's been two or three months now, folks. Our municipalities are holding their meetings virtually. 
legislatures are holding meetings virtually. Um, there's no reason in the world for us to be in this COVID uh, committee uh, substitution for a parliament. And if we're going to deal with these issues, we got to get you know we got to get our government back to work. Well. I would venture to say that a lot of people probably forget about the fact that this is actually a minority government because there doesn't seem to be a whole lot going on. And and I know that Andrew Shear has been going on about this for quite some time. Uh, Jagmeet Singh, even though they've been supporting the government on a number of different initiatives, is starting to move over to that side as well. Uh, there is a technical way for them to do this, and I think that how can you not have this discussion at some point? Uh, and it is it is about accountability, but it's about having a, everybody's voice involved in this job because we, I guess, you know, tend to live for the here and now and say, boy, this is a real f- tough thing we're going through with COVID-19, uh, and the governments have thrown the money at this. The ramifications of what's happening right now, the financial ramifications, are going to be with us for years, not just weeks or months, and we're going to have to f- develop some sort of a long-term strategy to, to, to pull ourselves out of this hole. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, now I know there's a, a weekly conference call with the premiers, Yeah, but, but I think that's got to morph into, um, I know uh, prime ministers uh, in the last 15 years have been very reluctant to call these federal-provincial conferences, but we really got to think about how we're running this country, and we can't do it if the party that is ignored is the one that provides all the services to people. You know, it's a city that picks up your garbage, puts out your fire, um, you know, uh, catches wild dogs and, and all the things that municipalities do. And to have them um, so directly uh, having to tax their, their some of their poorest uh, uh, low-wage uh, pensioners and whatnot on their homes is ridiculous. We just We just have to get... Uh, some kind of a consumption tax at the municipal level, like they do in cities like New York. New York City, you pay a, a municipal sales tax yeah. uh, on top of all the rest of it. And, you know, you can reprogram the cash register to do that. Uh, it's no big deal. Uh, I mean, yes, it means more money out of your pocket, but I think most people would rather pay a consumption tax than to see their property taxes go up by three or 400 bucks. Yeah, and I know we're getting into the philosophical end of the discussion here that, you know, property tax is the most regressive form of, and unfair form of taxation around because it is not based on ability to pay. Uh, it's a, it's a mathematical, you know, equation that says, here's how big your property is. Here's how much we think it's worth. Now, here's your share of what you're going to have to pay. Well, yeah, but I'm on a fixed income now. Well, too bad, so sad. That's what you have to do. Income yeah, I mean, tax if you on buy the other an side of $80,000 car. Yeah. Uh, you'll pay. HST and and that trickles back into uh, the province and the, and the federal government. So it, it's it's the fairest tax of all because it it absolutely is based on how much money you're spending. Yeah, yeah, and and I know it's not always working out that way. You know, the more people you make, the more you. I know there's lots of people that, that you know still dodge taxes and everything else, but the property tax thing is instituted way way back you know in the day when uh, it it was inconsequential really because again those days about 75 percent of the people in this country will lived in rural areas now it's like at what 86 percent live in cities and, and we right. have not we have not modernized the tax system here and and just think about it the the consumption tax captures those people that are using various tax avoidance measures to hide income so you might say they're not paying their share on uh on the income tax, although I would argue that if it's in the books and it's legal, uh, you know, you're, you're entitled to do it. 
but it, they get captured on the other end now with their consumption. So if you're living a lavish lifestyle, you pay more HST than somebody that's not. So it's it's as fair as you can get, I think, with taxes. Absolutely. And, um, uh, you know, I, ju- I just don't – the thing that kind of frustrates me, Bill, is I don't hear these kind of fundamental – discussions going on we're just talking about getting through this we're going to get through this we're in this together uh yeah we're in this together so what are you going to do about it you know uh, i mean i think there needs to be a fundamentally uh, fundamental rebalancing of of uh, as the fiscal situation during the depression th- there was a serious problem once again the municipalities were the ones that were getting killed because in those days municipalities uh, were responsible for welfare and so you had cities like Windsor literally going bankrupt mm-hmm. uh, because they couldn't handle the the caseload, and well, and so there was a bit of a readdressing of of finance. Then there was another one during the Second World War. Now we're into another crisis, and I think we have to readdress um, uh, finance again. Uh, you know, the uh, uh, situation has changed, and what we're working with now is simply not working for municipalities who represent every single person in this country. Yeah, well, well, hopefully we're going to see that discussion sooner than later. Maybe we have initiated it now. Out of time right now, John. Thanks, as always, for this. Uh, take care of yourself. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Bill. My pleasure. John Best, uh, of course, publisher of The Bay Observer. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This was the sound of the downtown of just about, oh, I don't even know how many, it's uh, it probably an incalculable number of American cities and towns uh, that have been outraged, of course, since last Monday with uh, the, the killing of George Floyd, whose funeral, by the way, I'm told, is, is coming up short, and that's uh, going to be a, a flashpoint, I'm sure, as well. But just about every place else, as uh, the sun went down in American cities, this is what they heard. On and on and on, uh, varying degrees of, of, of protest, of course, in different cities. Uh, some of them turning quite violent, and uh, there have been a number of injuries as a result of this. Uh, we can talk about why this is happening, and that, that's a, a discussion that needs to be had by all certainly. But we also need to talk about the fact that it is happening and, and the, the problems it creates, uh, both short and long term, when these kind of protests happen. Uh, to that point, I want to bring Phil Gursky into the conversation. Phil, of course, is the president and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. Uh, Phil, good to have you back on the program uh, under these very trying circumstances. Uh, glad you could join us for a few minutes today. My pleasure, Bill. How are you doing? I'm troubled, like I think most other people are that have been watching this over the last little while. And one of the things that was on my mind here is, again, I mean, we all know the the backdrop here. We know what happened, of course, a week ago in in Minneapolis. But as we see this happening uh, in more and more cities and towns right across North America, because it's not just uh, just in the States these days, uh, you have to ask yourself about public safety and about people getting involved in this. I mean, we in our democracy have a right to freedom of speech, and we do have a right of assembly, and we have a right to protest peacefully, and a lot of them are doing that. Uh, others uh, just look at this as an opportunity to create mayhem, and that's going to, well, it is putting people's lives at risk. Well, you're absolutely right, Bill. Uh, no state can allow disorder. No state can allow anarchy. No state can allow people to use acts of violence to make whatever point they're, they're trying to make. We do have a right to assemble, and we do have a right to express our dissent with the government. We do not have a right to firebomb businesses. We do not have a right to, to beat up policemen. We don't have a right to attack people. 
And this is where the state has every right to, to push back. The question becomes, though, what is the best strategy or method to do so? Some could argue what's being done in certain cities is not optimal, but let, let's not make let's not uh, underestimate this, Bill. This is a really, really difficult situation that is evolving as you and I speak, and it's not as, as crystal clear as some people want to make it out to be. Well, especially because of the magnitude of it, Phil, and, and I think that's what concerns us. I mean, we've talked historically, uh, you know, th- those of us that have been around. I remember the race riots in, in 1967 in Detroit. Uh, I remember the Watts riots in Los Angeles in the same era. Uh, and, and, of course, in the more modern era, there was just, you know, Jefferson or Ferguson, Illinois, just a, a couple of years ago, and this happened. But this is, this, is, this is coast to coast to coast right now. Uh, and, and, and I understand why it's happening, but the, the element of danger here, and, and it's almost like this is an extension of what happened in Minneapolis. Uh, what is excessive use of force? How do you contain something like this? And uh, at, at what point do you have to say, okay, uh, are we containing this right now, or is this becoming a, a, an armed conflict, which it seems to be in some situations? Yeah, you make a good point. I, I read an op-ed this morning by someone who said, this somehow feels different than 67, than 92. And, you're, and I'm, you know... I remember those things too, Bill. And they, you know, they were the, the, the race riots and and the and the and the anger and the frustration was valid. It descended into, unfortunately, basically mob rule, and, and actions were taken to quell that kind of thing. It does seem a little bit different. I, I think the problem here is that you do have a legitimate protest movement that points out to systemic racism within certain police forces, and I, and I don't want to overplay that, Bill. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of posts that police are, in, you know, racist by definition. Hell, I've been fighting a battle that someone says, CSIS, where I used to work, is, is racist by, by definition, which is complete crap. There are individuals, absolutely, like there are in all, all organizations. But it, it's, get, it's getting complicated by the fact that there seem to be a whole bunch of actors on the ground, some of whom may have some nefarious motives, and this is very anecdotal so far. And I think, you know, trying to point the finger at it's these people or those people it's not only unhelpful, it's probably inaccurate at this point, but you, you do raise a point, Bill. This, this, this is something that, you know, what does the state have to do to put an end to this? And it is spreading. It's not just in the States, it's in Canada, it's, and it's in Western Europe. And I, and I don't think these are easy decisions to make. I think at the best of times, it's difficult. And while it's, while it's morphing, as I said, almost on an hourly basis, it's even more difficult. Yeah, I, I do not agree also with this idea that, you know, if you've got a uniform on, then you're, you're racist. That's not true at all. Uh, there are sadly some some problems with it in just about every in the army and the in the police forces and just about everything else and in office buildings there are too for heaven's sakes so racism is here I mean we need to admit that and I think most of us have that understanding but the concern here is that when these do happen and and because of what happened of course in Minnesota uh, I understand that people are angry and they have a right to be angry and they have a right to protest and they have a right to express their displeasure. And I think most authorities understand that. If I've talked, you know, heard the, the comments of some of the mayors in some of these cities where things seem to be getting out of hand, they, they acknowledge that right up front. But, Phil, in your line of work, of course, and, and when we're looking at public safety issues here, the other side of that is every time something like this happens, there are people that gravitate to this. I mean, like mm-hmm. like bees to honey and say, hey, there's something going on here. Let's go cause some some havoc. Let's. Uh, they're the ones that are smashing windows, and they're the ones that are setting fires. They don't really give a damn about s- civil rights or anything like that. They just want to – they're anarchists. That's what it comes down to. We saw the G20 in Toronto. We've yeah. seen it all over the place right now, and that is a factor here. So as law enforcement officials, how do you separate one from the other? Wow. 
What a, what a great question. You're absolutely right. We, you know, there are people who you know, wouldn't pass up a, a chance to use violence because they, that's what they do. And you point out the G20 anarchists, the Black Bloc, a couple of years ago. Those are people that just like to, to bomb things, and people like to break windows and, and, and cause mayhem. You will always have those actors. And then we had you know, mass arrests in the G20, and there were allegations that peaceful protesters were being kind of wrapped up with, with the violent protesters. But the problem is, is that you know, this isn't a game. This isn't something you watch in a, in a, in a 48-minute Netflix series. This is something which is in real life. You can't tell the actors apart. Sometimes the, the violent actors are donning gear that makes them look like peaceful protesters. They're, they're blending with the crowd. So if you're a law enforcement officer and you've got Molotov cocktails being thrown at you or you've got people with guns in a worst-case scenario, you, don't, you, don't, you have to make a split-second decision on who's the bad guy and who's the good guy. And do good people get caught up in, in, the, in the sweep? Absolutely, and that's unfortunate. Yeah. But you know, let's let's cut a bit of slack here for people who are having to make those spur of the moment decisions. What do I do? How do I stop this from happening? And it's not that easy. Again, I, I you know I think there's legitimate reasons why law enforcement and heck those of us at CSIS are criticized for things we did or didn't do. But I, you know, this is really, really a very challenging situation. And mistakes are made when you're put under pressure. Mistakes are made when you're asked to do things without having all the facts. And mistakes are made when you're being told you must make this stop and make this stop now. So it is complicated. And, and I keep saying that, Bill, nothing in life is simple. Most things are complicated. And I think we have to keep that in mind at all times. Yeah. And I, and I know as soon as you start talking about some of these other incidents, I mean, it, it harkens back memories, some sad ones, of course, and of, of where this gets out of control. And as you say, people are making split-second decisions, sometimes in a very tragic sense. And, and you know, well, Kent State was a great example of that, too, back in 1971. I mean, they called out the National Guard. That was an anti-war protest that should never have become violent. It did uh, because of a few folks. And, well, people ended up dying as a result of, of the consequences of that. So training certainly is part of it. And I know that these forces, uh, especially in situations like this, undergo these sorts of things on a pretty consistent basis. But uh, it's, it's watching what's going on there and watching the radicals that, that are involved in this that are feeding off this really uh and and it's it's sad that it's happening because it really detracts from from the concerns that need to be discussed here uh and it probably doesn't help frankly that you that you've got you know the the guy in the white house right now basically flexing his muscle and and to almost to a point of antagonizing uh, some of the people that are protesting right now i mean you know when the, when they start looting we start shooting or something i mean that's that's not the sort of, of language you want from somebody who's trying to to try to quell these these things that uh, it seems to have the opposite effect so it's a this is a, a, like a perfect storm of, of controversy that we're watching right now yeah he's being anything but presidential right i read a great op-ed piece um by david Tribman this morning we talked about how do you be presidential when things are going south. And there are great examples in the past of presidents who said just the right thing at the right time. The current one is not saying anything right right now. He is feeding the flames. You know, getting back to training, Bill, I work a lot with law enforcement in this country, and they train and they train and they train and they train, and, and, and they do. And they, they're trying to be the best they can at a given time. And, and they do act appropriately in most situations. But there's an old saying, Bill, you know, is that the best plan never serves the first contact with the enemy. It's an old war term, right? Yeah. You can plan an operation up to yin-yang, and it, it falls apart the minute you actually start shooting. And it's not to say that training doesn't help. Training does help. Training obviously is a thing you have to do. But as I said earlier, and I think you agree with me, this is morphing constantly, and it, it puts your training to the test. And most times it works out well. Sometimes something happens that is either completely unexpected or it goes off in a direction that you simply can't handle. And at the end of the day, you are there to maintain law and order, and you make those decisions, and sometimes they're right and sometimes they're wrong. But 
they, you know, we're humans. And I think that, you know, we have to bear in mind the law enforcement officers are humans too, and they make mistakes. Now, unfortunately, sometimes the mistakes have lethal consequences, but let's just, you know, pause for a minute and just put ourselves in their shoes. They always say, you know, you want to know my life? Walk a mile in my shoes, maybe a kilometer sense for Canadians. But, you know, don't be quick to criticize me unless you have some sense as to what it is that I'm dealing with on a daily basis. Phil Dersky, uh, president of uh, Borealis Threat and uh, Risk Consulting. Always great to get your perspective on this, Phil. Thanks so much for this. Uh, stay safe, and uh, we'll talk again soon. You too, Bill. Take care. Okay. Uh, I want to continue this because there's so many different facets to this. And, and by the way, speaking of peaceful demonstrations, and uh, we had one in Hamilton uh, uh, over the weekend uh, that was peaceful. People actually were doing their physical distancing, but they were certainly uh, adamant about uh, exactly what they were there for and, and what their concerns were. This is a little bit of that. It makes me happy to know that uh, we do have people standing with us and people who actually care. Um, that, that, uh, that feels great. Like, I, I look around, I see a lot of different colors, and you know, I see a lot of white people, black people, all that, and it, it makes me happy for everyone that, who is here. I would just hope when they leave here that they keep the same energy and continue showing the support that they, were, they are today. So, uh, Here, here to that. Uh, I suggested in my commentary at 8.10 this morning that uh, these people protest right around the, the, every American city right now. Uh, yes, you have that right to do it, and we expect this, and we support you in, in your right to protest and, and let the, the governments know about the, about the inequality that you see on a daily basis. But they've got to keep an eye towards November the 3rd, too. That's Election Day. And as I mentioned in my commentary, uh, peaceful protests make a statement. Voting makes a difference. And, and we found that to be the case, and hopefully that's one of the things that, that people are going to start talking about sooner than later. Uh, as the protests continue, though, I want to talk about uh, what is going on and the impact that it is having on people's lives. Uh, I bring Evelyn Myrie into the conversation. Evelyn, of course, is the president of the Afro-Caribbean Association and founder of the Empower Strategy Group. Uh, Evelyn, thank you so much for joining us. I'm glad you could be with us for a few minutes. Well, thank you, Bill. Give me your impression of what you've seen over the last seven days since, well, since last Monday when that heinous act occurred in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. I saw people in pain. I saw people have had enough. I've seen people that we will not sit down and have our, you know, our bodies brutalized, which has been happening for so long. The increased weaponization of black body, you know, it's almost a sin to be black in terms of um, what's happening in our community, not only in America, but also globally and in Canada. And um, really, that's what I saw, the pain of everyone. Everyone is in pain. It's frustrating. And it's not just the, uh, the incident in Minnesota. It's a compilation of issues over the years, over the last few years. The police brutality of black, black men is unbearable. Unbearable. Yet we hear from mayors, we hear from chiefs of police in some of these cities uh, who seem to be reasonable people that said we just can't allow this sort of thing to happen, yet it, it does. I mean, it, you're right. If this were only the incident that we'd, that we'd seen, that's bad enough, a tragic in and of itself. Mm -hmm. But it, it joins a long list, Evelyn, and I can understand the frustration that people are feeling. Like, when is this ever going to end? There's two, there's two justice systems. It's very clear. There are two justice systems, one for blacks and one for non-blacks. It is very apparent. It's not even disputable. You've seen incidents where um, white men are attacking police for some reason or another, you know, and they, they do not get killed. Somehow we find a way to make sure that you, we uh, de-escalate or we um, 
arrest them without incident, without violent incident. The killing of black men is almost, you feel as though a black person, it was set out to happen. Like, we're going to kill these people. That's how we feel. That's how we feel. All across the world, that's how we feel. Our children, our boys are at risk. Everyone is clutching onto their little boys and crying. They're cute right now. Everybody loves, oh, he's so cute. He's so handsome. And he becomes a man. He becomes 16, 17. Then you start to see this criminalization happening. It's systemic. It's all around us. We've all seen the video, tragically. You know what my first impression was? I mean, it's terrible to actually see somebody being killed right in front of your eyes, but that's what we watched. But as we started to get the story as to why this happened in the first place, and I know that some details are sketchy, but some of these things are pretty much taken as fact, uh, is that uh, the, the, the reason the police were there from all accounts uh, is because there was an accusation that, that, that Mr. Floyd was, uh, was using a, a, a counterfeit $20 bill to, to try to buy something. Uh, but even the store owner says, I don't know if he knew it or not. He might not have known it was counterfeit. But even if, that's the point, though, I'm trying to make, Evelyn. This is, this is to, for the, to, the police to respond. This was not a violent act. This was a guy who was trying to, use, to buy something, and the police throw this guy down on the ground, handcuff him, you know, tie his hands behind his back, and, and put this knee to your, the throat. Uh, uh, over what? A possible, a possible counterfeit dollar. They, they weren't even sure it was counterfeit. And I mean, so this is... And so cavalierly, that smug look in his face, right? Looking that right at the camera. In his face, was ama- it was, tells the story of the hate. That they have a disregard for black lives, the inhumanity. They do not value black lives. They do not see black people as human beings. And it has been a long historical fact in the United States. We are valueless. We are valueless. So therefore, you can stomp in person's face. You can kill them. You can you can even knock down grandmothers and children. <laughs> you know, when you see a black child has some problems or misbehaving, first you the police knock them down. In the middle of you know, women, children. We have this thing about well, not you know, not punching women down. But when it comes to black people, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But many of these people that are perpetrating these acts over the years uh, take their lead from the guy in the White House. I mean, you know, well, good people on both before, sides. Yeah, it was happening before the White House. And Long time before. Yeah, you know, and the white, white community looks at it and saw it and blamed the victim. Oh, they must have done something wrong. Oh, they must have done something wrong. Even on Facebook, you see it. Oh, you must have done something wrong. So does that mean that you deserve to be killed or deserve to be harmed? If you do something wrong, pull them in front of the justice system. That's what you do. But no, we do not get those chances. I'm very, very upset. I know, and you have a right to be. We all have a right to be upset about what we've seen and what we've heard. Uh, you know, because you know what this did? It, and this is something not too many political leaders seem to want to realize or, or admit to. Uh, what that video did is it, it held a mirror up to the face of America and said, this is, this is what we are. This is North America, because that happens here too. Make no mistake about it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, very systemic here. Where does this end, or does it end? <laughs> when justice is seen and is being served, mm-hmm. the generation is not going to sit back and watch it happen to them. They're going to fight back. And we, need- we, need, we need to acknowledge uh, the contribution of African, African uh, black people around the world, locally, as well as in the United States. We need to... Um, 
stop the discrimination, look at our systems of discrimination, our systemic discrimination uh, pattern that has black children feeling as though they're less than and end up, you know, dropping out of schools earlier than they should. And it causes a cycle of issue of poverty, the impoverization of black people and people of color. This, these are systems need to be looked at and examined closely to see how biased they are and the impact they're having on people's lives. And once we are able to do that, I think we'll start to see a shift. We need to be honest and look at the systems that we have put in place and how they have disproportionality impact on some people over the negative ones over others. And that is, that is an area we need to look at and, and understand that we are complicit in this violence that's happening in the States right now. Well, the old, I know it sounds like an old cliche, but uh, you can't resolve a problem until you, first of all, admit that you have one. And I'm not so sure they've done that in all the circles down there. Evelyn, we're just about out of time this time. Uh, please stay healthy. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, we're going to see some leadership from some people uh, in the very near future to try to get, to get this thing back on track. But uh, we do appreciate your time and your perspective on this today. Thank you. Take care. Evelyn Myrie, of course, uh, from uh, Empower Strategy Group and the uh, president of the African Caribbean Association, who's been a strong voice, by the way, uh, on these subjects for many, many years here in our community. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Been a difficult and challenging uh, time for everybody, of course, because of COVID-19, especially for businesses. I mean, the numbers here are, well, they're darn right depressing when you start looking at this. Uh, Coronavirus uh, in Ontario alone uh, 400,000 jobs were lost in March. Uh, that's March. This is April's uh, statistics I'm looking at now. 689,200 jobs lost, bringing the employment total down to the lowest it's been for God knows how long. Uh, we're trying to help businesses out. The governments are trying to help business out as much as they can. And uh, to that end, the Ontario government now has uh, made some changes to uh, layoff regulations that have been in place for some time to try to, to lend a, a helping hand to small businesses. Joining us to talk about this is Rocco Rossi, the Ontario Chamber of Commerce President uh, and CEO, who joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Rocco, good to have you with us again. How are you keeping? Uh, well, uh, living the COVID dream like everyone uh, yeah. else and managing as best we can. Thank good you. To n- Good to know that you're in good health. Let's, let's talk a little bit about government assistance. I want to talk specifically about the layoff situation in a second here. But, but you and I had this discussion a couple of weeks ago. Both the federal and provincial governments uh, are doing what they can, or what they think they can anyway, to try to get uh, small businesses back on their feet. Uh, and it's going to be a very, very challenging time. Some have opened, some not yet. Uh, but they're all going to need more than just a helping hand. Are, uh, in the, the overall picture of things, Rocco, are you pleased? Are you satisfied with the work that they're doing so far to try to help? Well, look, you, you have to be grateful for, for them working at a pace we've never seen before and collaborating at a level that's never been um, seen before. I mean, you'd have to go back to wartime to, to even come even come close. Um, sadly, um as fast as they're going it's not going as as fast as the damage uh that covid is 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 inflicting upon many businesses and many employees and unfortunately we will uh we will still lose uh businesses there are a couple of areas particularly we you know we really think there are opportunities to um to fix the rent subsidy, um, to take the responsibility off of the shoulders of, of, of landlords and get the money, you know, more quickly and directly and fairly to, to all of the small businesses who do, uh, qualify and not have a circumstance where two very similar 
businesses with different landlords in different circumstances end up with a different result. That's just not that's just not right and, and needs to be fixed. Do they consult? Do they talk to you? Do they talk to the, cha- the Canadian Chamber, the Ontario Chamber, and other chambers around the country? I mean, we're are they in, getting input from the people? We're in constant, constant conversation. I, I, you know, certainly, again, uh, they, they, have reiter- they, they have iterated in a way that, again, we've not seen uh, before. So they put out programs, and then changes are made. You saw it even in th- something like the, the wage subsidy program, which started off as 10%. Uh, that that after all kinds of changes went to 75. Now you know what do we do uh, next? Because we have to be thinking through the transition from from subsidy to growth. Um, because even the power of uh, of Ottawa's printing press is not infinite. Um, because that will mean you know more deficits, more debt, uh, and more taxes down the line. And you never question the cost of your parachute as you're falling but uh, we 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 very much know now that absent uh, absent a vaccine we're going to be living with covid for some time and we have to find the ways um to to do that in the safest possible way understanding that um that it won't mean we get to zero um but the cost, and I'm not talking in economics on the other side, I'm talking about health costs, about depression, about mental health issues, about substance abuse, and also about the accumulated effect of so-called elective surgery and treatments being pushed off and pushed off to the point where they are themselves causing health consequences uh, for many. So this Look, you 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 got to feel for for everyone, including the politicians and government, in all of this because they are literally uh, dealing with something with no playbook. Let's talk specifically about uh, what the premier mentioned yesterday, and this, of course, has to do with uh, the layoff regulations. Uh, for those who may not be aware, some of them, I guess, are aware of it now, Rocco, because they've experienced it. Uh, yeah. If you have been laid off in Ontario, the the current act right now, the Employment Standards Act. Uh, essentially says that if it goes beyond uh, 13 weeks, you're, you're out of work. I mean, that, that, that you've just evolved. The, that parachute you just talked about is, is taken away from you. Uh, they've, they've, they're going to waive that for the next little while. Now, we've always talked about the impact that's going to have on the employee, which is significant, of course. But I, I wanted to bring you on today to talk about how the policy as it was now is was going to be detrimental to businesses themselves too because there's an added expense there if they have to actually declare their pl- employee as terminated because there's severance involved uh there's a possibility that they may never come back to that company even when they reopen their doors again there was uh, this this is something that that's really needed to be addressed a hundred percent and this is one again I, I applaud the government this is one we've been uh and others have been talking to them uh about you saw you know, Manitoba and Saskatchewan and the Atlantic provinces do similar things because, um, you know, quite frankly, for cash-strapped businesses uh, to say, you know, not only have you been hit with everything else, but now uh, at 13 weeks for a situation that you have no control because it's publicly required that you have to be closed, um, you're still not uh, able to... um, uh, to open in many circumstances, um, you should not then be uh, forced to make additional payments 
<clears throat> and similarly, to protect the employees, this keeps that link to the company while at the same time still leaves them uh, available to, um, to uh, obtain the CERB uh, and or EI if, if the CERB rules uh, change. Um, so we're talking about everyone um, uh, being protected in this. And so it, it's an excellent move. It would have been, you know, real salt in the wounds of, of, of desperate uh, small and medium-sized businesses if this had not been extended. Well, I guess the, the rationale here is, let's face it, we never know how long this is going to last. I mean, when this whole thing hit on March 17th, when they basically shut down a lot of those businesses, Rocco, I, I'm sure in some people's minds there was some anticipation that, oh, well, we even heard from some of the elected officials. Oh, by summertime, everything will be back to normal. We'll be okay. Well, we're nowhere near back to normal, and we're nowhere near a lot of these people getting back to, to where things were previous to this. So uh, I'm glad they've done this, too. You're right. It makes all kinds of sense. If the, I don't know how much longer it's going to have to be in place because uh, it's going to take a while for these guys to get back up off their knees. There is no question. And one of the other things we're pushing quite strongly right now it's interesting the the wage subsidy program in part because it came after the serve in part because of the timing it took many companies had had to make uh, the choices that that they did and if you have no business even if you get 75 percent of of wages you, you simply don't have the money to do more so you've not uh even if you do qualify many companies have chosen not to and so actually the government has spent significantly less than was originally anticipated. And now they're going through a process asking for how do we improve the, uh, the program. And, and very much what we at the OCC are pushing is for them to think about not simply not about improving a program because, you know, we're from government and we want to improve programs, but how do we improve delivering on what it is that the intent of the program is? Um, and that's really about how do we get to rehiring? How do we get uh, to maintaining people on the job? And rather than uh, the subsidy, maybe some of those funds are better spent uh, with startup funds for small and medium-sized businesses so that they can buy the PPE that they need. They can do the retrofits of their shops, put in plexiglass, um, you know, do deep cleans, bring in sanitizer, et cetera. They're cash strapped, use those funds. That's going to help them reopen safely and successfully. And that is the number one uh, way that you're going to build and maintain confidence while we still have COVID among us. We have to increase uh, the money into testing, into tracking and tracing, because once you have a positive test, and again, we're not going to eliminate all positive tests uh, while there's no vaccine. That's not that's not possible. Um, but then if we have very strong tracking and tracing, we can very quickly find out who that person has been in contact with over the last few days and very quickly bring situations under control. The, the point is we want to limit um, limit any spikes that could collapse the healthcare system um, and give people sufficient confidence along with the supports if they do get sick um, that we're doing everything possible uh, to make this as safe as possible. And that's why the government is correctly 
rolled out this, although many of my, my members are so incredibly frustrated and want to get out there, we do want to do this correctly because if you don't have the confidence of employees and consumers, you can say all you want that you're open, you're not going to have any business. Exactly. Rocco Rossi, uh, President and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. Uh, Rocco, stay well. Uh, we'll talk again soon. Thanks for this today. All the very best. Thanks for keeping the spotlight on the issue, Bill. Appreciate you it. You betcha. Take care, Rocco. Take care. Uh, I want to talk about the, the other announcement the Ford government made. And of course, that's extending the emergency uh, measures uh, that are in place here right now till the end of this month, at least. Remember, it was supposed to end on the 6th of June this week. Uh, and the, the Premier said uh, it's going to go beyond that now. Uh, really not surprising, given the scenario that we're faced here right now, because uh, we need to listen to uh, those who are, have that expertise, that medical expertise about what we are dealing here with COVID-19, and balance that against, as Rocco was just talking about, uh, the desire to just let's throw the doors open and try to get ba- businesses back in form. Uh, joining us to talk about this, Dr. Todd Coleman, PhD assistant professor in the Department of Health Sciences at Wilfrid Laurier University. Uh, doctor, thanks once again. Grad- glad you could join us today. You're not surprised, I assume, by the government's announcement to extend the uh, the emergencies? No, not at all. It makes perfect sense. Uh, till at least the end of June. My guess is that when we draw closer to the end of June, we may well see another extension of this as well. Uh, because what we tend to forget when we look at all these things that want to happen, the other to to get a Stanley Cup playoff round, to get this going, and it's a uh, the virus is still out there. And, and I, I, the question a lot of people are asking, and I saw one of the the Toronto Maple Leafs, Mitch Marner, actually one of their star players, saying, "Well, what if what if one of us gets this? What what happens then? I mean, this is this is still an ugly virus, and I think a lot of people are concerned about the the second wave that we've talked about. But even if it's not a a wave per se, uh, we're exposing ourselves." And, and there's a real concern here about the impact that might have. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, it's still circulating. It's still, uh, it hasn't changed. It's very easy to catch. We're still seeing on average uh, about 400 cases per day in the province. And I think we need to look at this very uh, vigilantly uh, as we move forward. Well, how do we do that uh, with the desire to, as you say, want to move forward and we want to try to get back to things? I don't know uh, what professional sports and where they are in the pecking order of priorities right now, but, I mean, that seems to be the topic for an awful lot of people, as has small businesses and restaurants and things of this nature. But we have not controlled the beast, and, and I think that's the thing that we have to concern ourselves with is the you know the impact that COVID is going to have. It didn't go away in the summertime like some people thought. It doesn't seem to be uh seasonal like some people have thought uh and i guess you know if we're going to look at a, at a rather you know broad picture of this right now doctor we're not even quite sure what the virus does to us are we i mean it just started out as well this is a respiratory thing it would, you know it's going to infect your lungs uh, now we're not even sure what other parts of the body it's going to have an impact on yeah there's still uh, a lot of unknowns but we're finding out more uh by the hour it seems uh just from the fact that there's hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people who've been infected with this, uh, and the different manifestations are finally starting to to come to light. Uh, And the idea there is that we're not seeing the the downward trend, especially in Ontario, that we would hope to see uh, to be able to open things up uh, more, uh, more openly, I guess. We've talked about some of the research that's going on, and you've been very insightful in directing us exactly where is going, what's happening, and with by whom. Uh, and of course, the talk of the vaccine, which is, I guess, the goal that everybody's shooting for right now, and we still don't know. 
uh, how long that's going to take, if in fact they're even de- able to develop one. But we're also hearing a number of stories uh, in the last couple of weeks, especially, Doctor, about treatment for COVID-19 and, and some initiatives about trying to develop uh, some sorts of medications, for instance, uh, to try to, to deal with it once uh, you do test positive for something like that. Uh, now, I, which is not unlike, I guess, what they did with HIV, isn't it? Because they, they wanted a cure for that, too, a vaccine for that. It, it never happened. But you can treat mm-hmm. HIV now. Is, is is that the short-term goal now, Doctor? I think treatment is one of the, the key pieces of the treatment puzzle that we want. So the reason why vaccines take so long uh, is because we're, we're, we're looking at preventing illness, right? Whereas treatment mm-hmm. is... We, we've got plenty of plenty and plenty of people who are infected that could take part in clinical trials to see whether or not uh, treatment is effective. So there's uh, dozens, if not hundreds of different treatments uh, that are currently being trialed uh, that will likely see uh, more effects uh, a lot more quickly than than the vaccine trials. So if that were to happen, uh, and again, we're not sure of the time frame of that, uh, it, it doesn't necessarily eradicate the virus, but it, it helps us control it. You tested positively. We'll take this medication and it will lessen the symptoms, maybe not be as dramatic. And I guess, well, we can't even make that kind of a generalization, can we? Because we don't know how it's going to impact each and every, each person that it, that it does infect. That's right. So we don't know, because of the different manifestations of the way that COVID-19 presents itself in the population, uh, we won't see uh, exactly what the the tr- different treatment modalities might actually cover, whether that's uh, the respiratory infections, whether that's uh, blood oxygenation, those kinds of things. There's a whole bunch of different uh, treatment possibilities uh, that are currently uh, being tested right now that could potentially play a, together a more impactful role than just simply social distancing and, uh, and uh, waiting for a vaccine. We, we know much more, as you've said, than we did back in February, March, uh, when, when many of us was getting the first uh, exposure to the, to the virus, or at least some information about the virus anyway. Have we nailed down exactly how long the virus can live on a, 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 a table or, or a hand railing, anything like that? Because there's some discrepancy about that earlier on. Yeah, there's still a lot of, of wide-ranging uh, figures for whether or not something lives on a surface. Uh, some of the more reliable things that I've heard is 24 hours uh, on cardboard, for example, with a few days on plastics and, and certain metals. Uh, however, whether or not that's going to contribute to the same level, uh, it seems to be the, the likelihood of people getting this is through uh, respiratory droplets. Which brings us right back to gloves and masks, doesn't it? That's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's the most important thing we could do right now. Those are the tools, Doctor. Great to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for the information. When uh, stay well, we'll talk again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Take care, Doctor Todd Coleman from uh, Wilfrid Laurier University. The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on nine hundred CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.